The following episode is in memory of Tony Dow. Keep hoping for the ride to turn my tide. Keep lurching on the sidelines, searching for the guidelines. Twitching on the byways, hitching on the highways of life. Welcome to session three of the Neurotic Vaccine. I'm clinical and forensic psychologist, Dr. Scott Kapoyan. As the world's arms anxiously await the vaccines that'll help us return to normal again, or at least a manageable new normal, this podcast and virtual therapy session will try to help my patient, former Seinfeld writer and author, Andy Cowan, manage a new normal in his own life towards the goal of becoming immune to, or at least less influenced by neurosis. You want to know what's normal in my own life? Forgetting not to leave the coffee grounds in the coffee maker overnight. Want to help me manage that? Yeah, that's a situation you want to work on, but... Why? You're hearing coffee and you're thinking chock full of nuts? (laughs) (laughs) You know that show, Finding Your Roots? Yeah. I wish I could discover my neurotic roots Hmm. so I could trace my family tree and blame my first ancestor who passed it on to the rest of us. That sounds like a noble project. I mean, don't get me wrong. My parents, they were giving in so many ways. I love them very much. I like that, Andy. They clothed me, fed me, paid for college and grad school. Wonder about their return on that investment. If they'd invested in face masks, I'd have a lot more money in the bank right now. Well, they'd have to have a a real accurate view of the future. But you bring up a very interesting point, discovering your roots. If you believe, like I do, that genes play a big part in who you are, you're not 100%, but around 50, 60% with some even weighting heavier on the genetic spectrum, you probably did inherit a certain level of that disposition from one or both parents or from people beyond that. But you're also talking about all the great things they did for you. Absolutely. Look, my mom and dad weren't exactly the cheerleading types doesn't mean they weren't loving parents. I mean, I could have told them, they're carving me on Mount Rushmore. I'm happy you're excited. (laughs) I'm exaggerating. I'm sure they would have been thrilled. I guess it was weird that they didn't share your level of enthusiasm. Really? That was weird? Now you're going to make me feel even more neurotic. That was probably the inaccurate thing to say. I guess you just noticed that they did not share your level of enthusiasm, and that stuck. The weird attributes to what you just said. You were weird, not my parents. My comment was weird. Hey. Thanks for pointing that out. (laughs) You know, in the best therapy, the uh, doctor learns from the patient. And your weirdness is making me appreciate my parents even more in comparison to you. (laughs) And possibly appreciating me even less. Exactly. Good job of therapy there, Dr. K. Is that a counter-tactical therapeutic endeavor? You're making yourself look foolish so the patient looks good? (laughs) You know what my parents once did? You know, I wrote for Seinfeld. One of my big episodes was the opposite. George follows the opposite of his instincts and everything starts working for him. He admits he's out of work, he's unemployed, he lives at home with his parents. I always used to think if I'd done the complete opposite, I would have been better off. So one day I was talking with my parents and they were, we were talking about the impact of the opposite. And to this day, it's mentioned in news and life imitating art and referenced in politics and economics, but they were basically saying that yada yada the Seinfeld yada yada episode had more of an impact with the audience or people remembered it more than the opposite okay yeah. now 
Even if they did believe that, wouldn't you think they'd kind of give a rooting interest to the opposite? I think you're identifying a theme that's very common in parent-child relations. No matter what you do, it's never good enough. And I even remembered at the time thinking, you know, this is almost funny. I can't believe this is happening. And sure enough, I'm recalling it all these years later. But look, they weren't that bad at cheerleading. Now I'm feeling guilty. I'm making fun of my folks. Guilt beyond the grave. What could be worse than that? Well, Andy, they got you to the point. You worked on arguably one of the top comedy shows in our lifetime. You were a vital part of it for the time that you were there. They might have got you to that point. I wasn't the heart of the uh, operation. More like the tonsils. <laughs> no, listen, my parents expressed their pride in a lot of ways. And they sent me great cards. Hallmark was great at cheerleading. I could just imagine you look at the card. Well, you don't really feel this way. Hallmark does. <laughs> well, I always used to say, nobody I know is as nice as Hallmark says they are. <laughs> I mean, why do strangers, Dr. K, give you more strokes than your own family? The good kind of strokes, not the blood clotting kind. Yeah, very easy to deal with a stranger because we don't see him on a regular basis. Yeah, that's what Facebook strokes or likes are all about. You know, people who don't know you rooting you on, whereas familiarity breeds contempt. When it comes to relationships, whatever they may be, you tell me if I'm wrong. There's a honeymoon period. You know, everything's peachy keen till they get to know you. And who knows you better than your family? Yeah, I think the honeymoon period applies to relationships of all kinds. It's like an expected mother's very excited to have this kid and then she's sleep deprived for a year and it's not so great and the kid's throwing up all over the place. Some, some mothers and fathers handle that uneventfully and oh, isn't that great? But man, from what I hear from my clients, it's a huge deal. It's a major adjustment. So what are you saying? My folks weren't as effusive over the opposite because the writer of the yada yada never threw up on them when they were a baby. <laughs> At least it makes sense now. What did your parents uh, say about you when you were an infant? Did ever comment about what you were like from birth to one? No, the birth to one era is strangely missing. <laughs> I w <laughs> they never made any comments about what you were like as an infant? I mean, I've seen home movies, but uh, I don't remember detailed reports. You know, it's not like today where people take digital pics of their kids every minute and they send you files of them. When we were kids, it was a Kodak moment, you know, big deal, until puberty messed up everything and there were a lot fewer Kodak moments. When you get these pictures, do you feel a pressure to respond or a pressure to look at it in the event of a future conversation? Yeah, I mean, I don't even have patience for digital children. <laughs> I mean, if my niece knew I deleted most of the JPEGs of baby Eli she sends me, <laughs> can't I just see... 40 pictures of him cutting his teeth before I get the gist. <laughs> and God forbid you delete any before you look at him. There could be a quiz later. Oh, how do you like the pictures of Eli at the zoo? Great. We didn't go to the zoo, Uncle Andy. You never <laughs> opened them. <laughs> I never looked at it. <laughs> oh. Look, I, I never even raised kids. I mean, who am I to judge? My folks or my niece's child rearing. I couldn't even raise turtles as a kid. I changed the water. I guess not enough. <laughs> Have you ever heard of a Yiddish expression, kvel? You know what that is, Dr. K? Uh, I think I might have heard of it, but maybe just once and I can't define it. You want to elaborate? Yeah, it's to gush. You know, my folks weren't kvellers or gushers. I'm sure that's, again, getting back to uh, my ancestors, I'm sure it's because their folks weren't kvellers and their folks' folks weren't kvellers. I remember a writer uh, on a sitcom staff I worked on, he was always on. 
performing on tables in front of us. I mean, almost daring us not to laugh. Either he got too much felling as a kid, my funny son, or I don't know, maybe he didn't get enough and that was his way of seeking attention? Yeah, possibly. Could, could be a lot of things. Maybe he was just naturally organically that way. Hmm. It wasn't my folks' fault they were subtle with the cheerleading. Give me an A. Give me a G. Give me a G. Give me an R. What's that spell? Agra? <laughs> they didn't need to spell it out. Aggravate. Don't aggravate me. Again, Dr. K, I'm not blaming my father or my mother. It wasn't her fault. It was her mother's fault. You know, Gammy passed her neurosis onto her, and I love Gammy too. It wasn't her fault. Must go all the way back to Adam and Eve Cowan. My grandma drove my mom nuts. My mom drove me nuts. I must have been genetically programmed to drive my kids nuts. That's probably why I never had kids. You are the endpoint of this transmission of intergenerational neurosis. Yeah, the manufacturer upstairs took all of eternity to finally figure out the Cowan model has a glitch. I'm being discontinued. I'm like a Toyota Corona. Boy, there's a brand. Nice in its day, but you wouldn't want to catch it now. I like that term, the Cowan model. I might have to uh, think about that and broaden the interpretation to include <laughs> lots of other phenomena, psychologically speaking. It's a self-driving model because I drive myself crazy. <laughs> Got a question about the passenger in life I'm looking for. Okay. Do you look for your parents in your partner or generally the opposite of your parents? Speaking of the opposite. I think people say they look for the opposite in many cases, but unconsciously are attracted to what they're familiar with, which, which is their parents. And if it's a good role model, it has a good success. But if it's a negative, nasty role model, it'll have a completely different outcome. No, they were a good role model. And they were married 65 years. Tough act to follow. Hmm. I mean, whether I had enough of it or not, I have always wanted a cheerleader in my life. But, you know, maybe I wouldn't believe the cheers. You know, the old Groucho Woody line, I wouldn't want to be a member of a club that would have me as a member. You believe that? I don't know. I hated camp when I was a kid until I moved to a different bunk where the kids were nicer. So I was glad to be a member of that club. In fact, 30 years later, when Seinfeld asked me what it was like moving to his show on the lot where I'd come from another show I was working on that I didn't like. I told him it was like back at camp and moving to a better bunk. Yeah, that's good. Oh, well, thanks for the validation, but now I don't want to be a member of your club that would have me as a member. <laughs> but married for 65 years, that's a special club right there. Yeah. I can't believe my mother's been gone four years. My father's seven years already. Do you feel like an orphan with their absence? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh... Your folks die. It's like a rocket booster, accelerating your life even faster. It makes you realize how finite all of it is. I mean, we didn't get to a point of fully expressing ourselves to each other. It's like the, uh, I was thinking about this. It's like the Sopranos finale. Remember that? An unsatisfactory ending. Yeah. All that buildup, you know, to this quick snuff out. And then after my dad died and you know, my mom was still alive uh, for a couple of years, my Sunday calls were suddenly like, talking to half a team. Laurel, Simon, Branks. Where's Hardy? Where's Garfunkel? Where's Beans? <laughs> and my mom still kept my dad's voice on the voicemail. She once asked if I wanted her to get rid of it. I told her, no way. And then when he said, you know, we'll get back to you shortly, in a way, it made it seem like he, he might get back to me. 
I mean, what the hell? Most of the other voices in my life are pre-recorded, so his seemed just as real. Yeah, those memories of him are still very real. My folks were soulmates. Even their birthdays were just two days apart. So I was always paranoid. The first card for my mom was still lying around the house when the second card for my dad got there. So I used to worry, what if they compared? Did to a wonderful mother sound as appreciative as to a great dad? (laughs) Oh, and the year they hit 85 and 90, get this, I tried to make them feel young again and hopefully laugh a little instead of pre-eulogizing them, you know, with maudlin sentiment that fixated on those big, scary numbers. I bought cards for eight and nine-year-olds, and I scrawled in the second digits, a five for mom, a zero for dad, some rabbit. Hey, 85-year-old, have a hop, hop, hoppy birthday. I don't remember him uh, too hop, hop, hoppy about it. Oh, you don't remember much of a reaction? I don't even remember where I put my glasses. (laughs) It's all a blur especially when I'm not wearing my glasses. (laughs) I feel like I just went through a, a mental steam bath with my folks, whom I loved and I still love. Wow, very nice. How did it feel when you were doing that? Well, you want to dredge all this up again? I told you, I one mental steam bath a day is enough. I don't need another steam bath. Got it. You're making me steamed. I guess I am having a steam bath. No. You seem stressed. Maybe I am stressed. You unloaded a lot in today's therapy session. I think it's time to do a visualization. Listeners, this is when I help the patient focus on positive images and feelings that help him maintain a more balanced approach to his life. Andy, I really need you to relax and embrace the imagery. Absorb every aspect of it. Really try to make it your alternative reality for at least these few minutes, or else it probably won't carry over into your actual life. What actual life? I want you to imagine an hour of the day when you're at your best moment, when you're relaxed, when you'd feel comfortable sharing your intimate space with a life partner. If you can summon this feeling, you can learn to apply it to other times of the day. A whole hour? How about 20 minutes? Okay. 20 minutes. All right, all right. I like dusk, late dusk. I would love to live on a planet that was dusk all the time. Okay, the sun is setting. The twinkling lights of surrounding homes are starting to fill the night air. You're at peace. Your loving wife sits with you on the couch. Like I can afford a twinkling home in LA. She hugs you. You feel her warmth light up your soul. It's the embrace of a person who knows you inside and out, accepts you for who you are, loves you for who you are. The two of you love each other, warts and all. You share the same. She's got warts? You feel each other's heartbeats. It's as if the two of you share the same heart. She fills your glass with a lovely Cabernet. Each of you. You can't make it white. I've got light carpet. It could stain. Okay. How do you feel? like returning to the gentler times of my previous level of stress. Thanks, Dr. K. The following survey represents an earlier time in the pandemic. Andy, I was um, reading about a survey today that was released by the uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It's a study of over 5,000 Americans. This is a little dire, but I've got a uh, prescription for it that'll make it more hopeful. But according to this survey of over 5,000 Americans, 
31% responded that they were suffering from anxiety or depression, 26% symptoms of traumatic stress, 13% were using drugs or alcohol more heavily for the first time to cope with the pandemic, and 11% had seriously contemplated suicide. So while this is quite dire sounding, there are many activities that we can all do to improve our mental health. So one, find people in your life who are coping positively and learn from them, role models. Two, join an online group to develop connections with people. Don't isolate yourself. If you're a parent and wondering what to do with your kids, engage in board and other games that everyone can play. Four, begin a hobby. Five, exercise regularly. You don't need a gym. Walking is fine. Six, monitor self-talk. What you say to yourself is so important. Your worst imaginings can be a self-fulfilling prophecy and keep you stuck. Finally, watch tendencies to overindulge in substances, food, or any activity that increases addiction and decreases engagement. And remember, while most of us have never experienced anything like this in our lives, we have responded to adversity as a nation effectively and will continue to do so. Well, I'm engaging in board games right now because I'm bored with what you just said. Yeah, I thought you were meaning B-O-R-E-D. If only I had avoided activities that decrease engagement, I would have avoided that. <laughs> and my worst imaginings weren't a self-fulfilling prophecy. I imagine that you'd never end, but thankfully you did. You're uh, sounding very psychologically healthy today. Thanks to those insightful tips that make Parade Magazine and Reader's Digest sound probing. <laughs> but I'll be sure to chew on them with the nourishment of gum. You're comparing my comments to chewing gum? No, they wouldn't stick to the sole of my shoe. <laughs> but I do applaud your insane optimism. Well, Andy, I don't think I'm insanely upbeat or optimistic, but I do think that adversity is always an opportunity for something positive to happen. And sometimes the greatest traumas offer the best hopes. Well said, Dr. K. I think you're channeling the spirit of the late, great Ward Cleaver, which is perfect for today's show. The other family I grew up with, the brothers I had for 30 minutes a week throughout my formative years, will be joining us soon. They're perfect TV parents are why I'm so damaged. The Beave and Wally, Jerry Mathers, and Tony Dow. That's very exciting. I'm really looking forward to this interview. My mother didn't wear a pearl necklace every day. My father didn't unfailingly connect my experiences with childhood memories of his own. Ward, I'm worried about Beaver and Wally. Well, I'd be worried if you weren't, dear. <laughs> it seems the two of them have been locked in their room for five hours. Now, what do you suppose they're doing up there? Only one way to find out. I'll go get a look-see. Wally, Beaver, Wally, Beaver, Wally, Wally, Beaver, Wally, Wally, Beaver, Wally, 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 well, I remember when I was your age, I did quite a bit of that myself. <laughs> I should be thanked for not being a father. Oh my gosh. Look at all the aggravation I'm saving some future little me. They ought to have never gonna be a father's day. Who would the card be from, my sperm? 
Dear never going to be a dad, thanks for never sending me to camp or fallopian tubes. What kind of parents, by the way, name their boy Guy? Guy Lombardo's parents, Guy Ritchie's parents, you know, the film director. But how lazy is that? I mean, was Hey You already taken? <laughs> There's an identity crisis waiting to happen. Hey, Guy, what's up? Not you, Guy, the other guy with a normal name. Well, before we revisit the past and childhood with Jerry Mathers and Tony Dow, we're about to take a very special journey, Dr. K. We are actually going to go back into the past. Yes. And make a prediction while in the past about the future that sounds sick, but one we know will become true. It's time for the sick but true future prediction from the past. Today, we're going back, Scott. 60 years. Are you ready? I'm ready. You don't sound ready. <laughs> I am. <laughs> All right. Did you have a heavy breakfast this morning? Because time travel can make you nauseous. No, I had a smoothie. Oh, okay. Smoothie. Wow. Well, look, staying in the 2020s makes me nauseous too. So let's, let's get the hell out of here for a while. All right. Let's go back into the past. We're going. We're going. It's March 1962, Scott. I'm feeling it. Really? You call that feeling it? <laughs> We're at a party in Palm Springs, California, and the Democratic president is about to jump in the sack and plant a big wet one on the lips of the nation's number one sex goddess. Many in the press know all about these adulterous affairs, but they don't even think it's worth mentioning. And now, the sick but true future prediction from the past. 38 years from now, the press will make a big stink over the Democratic presidential candidate Al Gore planting a big wet one on the lips of his own wife, Tipper, at the 2000 Democratic Convention. Oh, and in 58 years, the Republican president's third wife will count the days till she doesn't kiss off. Now let's go back into the present. Oh, my God. How you feeling there, Scott? Uh, time traveled out a bit. Yeah? Do you have time travel lag? Yeah, just, just a bit. <coughs> I think I smoked a pack of Marlboros just from breathing in the air. Love the music, love the era, love Maryland, love JFK. Oh, I love JFK too, and Maryland. I had no chance with her. If only cubic zirconias were a girl's best friend. <laughs> and Al would have made a great president. Too bad global warming couldn't heat up his marriage. It is such a kick to greet the stars of the classic show that made millions of us wonder why our folks didn't eat breakfast with us every morning. It's been watched in over 80 countries and 40 languages. How do you say little squirt in Swahili? These days, you can catch it on MeTV and my DVR. Leave it to Beaver. Welcome, Jerry Mathers and Tony Dow. So great to have you two here. I remember your childhood better than my own. That can't be normal, right, Dr. K? Well, that's a compelling thought. I'd like to hear more about that. Well, I could tell them the reason. You could watch our childhood over and over again because it's been in reruns since early 60s. So a lot of people watch it a lot more than one time. It really is a benchmark for my own childhood, much more than the blurry one I actually had. It was an idealized version of life back then. But you kids seem real. You didn't seem like miniature adults spewing out comedy writers' lines. 
they were stories from real life. The writers had a bunch of kids and all the stories, especially from the first season, came from stories that their kids brought home from school. So if the kid lost his report card or something, they would make a story about that particular thing. And, and as a matter of fact, there was a show about a car that I built and Ward helped. And I don't know if Beaver helped. He was usually a pain in the neck in the garage. I'm a supervisor. You just keep forgetting. I'm a born supervisor. <laughs> that's, that's true. You are. Yeah. It wasn't called Reba to Wally. <laughs> <laughs> They'd have, towards the second, third, fourth season, they would have new writers come in. And the new writers would usually come in with four or five treatments of shows that they thought would be really good. So they would do their pitch and they would talk about the shows that they thought would be good for our show. And then after it was all over, Joe Conley would say, oh, yeah, yeah, that was very good. But now tell me the worst thing that ever happened to you as a kid. And they would tell him and he'd say, you go write that. That's great. <laughs> so all the stories. Ah, if I was a writer back then, Dr. K, you could have had a whole season of Beaver getting beat up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I watched it and I wouldn't watch anything that was fantastic. I had to have a connection to it, even as a kid. So it was a lot more realistic than critics have portrayed over the years. Agree? I would. And, I, you know, I think a, a lot of it, too, was a lot of times when we were doing it, we would shoot a scene. But when we were repeating the lines back, a lot of times, especially me, would say things that meant the same thing, but wasn't the way it had been written. Now, they had the two writers, quite a few kids between them. So it would sound more like what a kid would really say than, you know, if it was just a written script. And then they would use the part that I not made up, but said the same thing. You know, when people criticize a show, usually they're criticizing it based on how we live now. But back in the 50s, you know, mom did wear pearls and she did wear high heels. Well, high heels was a little over the top. That was because the kids were growing up. But um, a lot of fathers would wear their suit and tie at a dinner, and a lot wouldn't, but it really reflected an ideal time in America, which is what they were trying to do, because, of course, the show was shipped overseas and all around the world, and they wanted America to, to show up as a you know, good spot to be. Off script, is there anything neurotic about you guys, Jerry Mathers and Tony Dow, so I don't have to feel as uniquely neurotic? I'm not sure that anybody's as neurotic as you are. I see this sign back here says a neurotic vaccine. Have you taken it? <laughs> Dr. Fauci is working on the uh, coronavirus vaccine. We're working on the neurotic vaccine. Lots of luck. <laughs> Dr. K is my trial vaccine, so I might as well be taking the placebo. <laughs> you're not neurotic, are you, Jerry? Oh, your first wife was pretty neurotic. I must say. That's why she was the first one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You did your homework, Beaver. <laughs> Here's one of life's disappointments I never heard Ward or June counsel you about. When your old house was sold in season two, you were jazzed you'd have separate bedrooms in the new one. Never happened. Never happened. Bad for shooting. Hard to do. They got to switch sets and the whole crew has to go and takes up a lot of time. So it's much more convenient to be able to shoot over the shoulder shots of us in the same bedroom. Oh yeah, it's much better in one spot. It's always better if you can include everybody in the same shot. Well, aside from my sister and I, thank God, having separate bedrooms, <laughs> I was neurotically whining earlier to Dr. K about my Cleaver family envy growing up. Dr. K, uh, is there anything you could ask them that would 
ease that envy? Well, I had a couple of thoughts, but one of my thoughts was to what extent did your television life mirror your real life? Not at all. We had a very different life. I mean, we were there from eight to five every day and you had no lines or nine to six. So it was, it was a lot different life than kids that were just at home and with their parents and go, go to school with a lot of kids. Tony and I had private tutors that were the best in the L.A. City school system, but uh, it's a very different life than being a regular kid. Yeah, you miss all the social interactions and uh, all the scrapes. Sports. Yeah, you miss sports, of course. And uh, so there's a lot of things you miss, but you get a few things in, in exchange. Like a big check every week. Well, a check helps. But, you know, in today's world, it would be a tip for somebody. And we're talking 39 episodes a year. You guys worked hard for it. But Tony, you had another nice perk. All those cute girlfriends on the show. Yeah, well, um, they were cute. And uh, as bad as Wally did with them, um, I did worse. Really? Impossible. Yeah. When you were this good-looking kid, recognizable to all these young, swooning gals. Well, I'm not sure how swooning they were, and I'm not sure how young and cute they were. Usually, the swooners were the 250-pound grandmothers. Oh, have I got a granddaughter for you kind of grandmother. <laughs> yeah. Going through puberty is challenging enough off camera. How was it on camera? I was more of a kid. Tony was really the one, so I'll let you go first. <laughs> you just want to hear me so you can steal some of my ideas. Or maybe Jerry just wanted to forget about his own awkward adolescence, Dr. K. Like I want to forget about mine. There was even a late episode where Gawky Beaver got on June's nerves from breathing on her, and he didn't feel young and cute anymore. Did Jerry not feel young and cute anymore? I should have asked him about that. Andy, whether awkward adolescence or Jerry and Tony's interview, what's done is done. Can we go back to it now? All right. It's tough when you don't have a lot of social exchanges and you don't lose the girl because you did some dumb thing and you don't get in a fight at the football game on Friday night. You miss a bunch of stuff. So it was a little little bit hard, but uh, we managed. Right after that, I bought a sailboat. I lived on it for a number of years and it was actually a very cool time. Wow. That's like Wally and the Beave in that episode I watched today. Well, I actually had a penguin and an otter. I didn't have a beaver. <laughs> oh. <laughs> of course, another difference between Leave it to Beaver and real life, the show was in black and white, but it's obviously strange now to see how popular culture reflected little or no diversity back then. Yeah, we were a little low on the diversity uh, level. Yeah, which is too bad. It was a different, different way of life. A lot of things have changed since then. A lot of it's better, but some of it isn't. It's interesting that the show wrapped up its network run about five months before the world changed. I mean, Dallas and JFK, it's an almost fitting end to a more innocent era. Very, very definitely. Yeah, everything changed once JFK was shot. I mean, that was a whole big issue, and it became a real problem for the government because they issued the Warren Report, who a lot of people didn't agree with. And so it was a big change. It was interesting those times. Let's talk about an interesting character on the show. Who had a hint of neurosis about him? Bad old Eddie Haskell, played by Ken Osmond, who we lost in 2020. You know, that slimy but insecure persona of his, although he had a heart, it was great. I, Tony, I loved how you, Mr. Big Man on Campus, kept a guy like Eddie as your best friend versus some 
mirror image big man on campus. It made it seem real. What do you think Wally saw in Eddie that made him his best friend? Well, I think he saw the vulnerabilities. That's what makes a villain likable to an audience, is if you really see the inside and see the vulnerabilities and the problems that they're going through, then you understand when they do a bogus thing, you understand what it's all about a little more. So I think that was what it was about. And of course, Wally understood it. And uh, Beaver came to understand it in one of the later shows, maybe a few of them where he would say something about, uh, gee, Wally, I know why Eddie's your best friend now, because he really is a good guy. I don't know. It was probably written better than that, I'm sure. His character was also an interesting contrast to the sunniness of the rest of the characters. Every show needs one villain, at least. Was that part of the thought about his character, or did that happen organically? No, I think it was that his character was written to be, Kenny was the nicest guy. You know, he's a L.A. police officer and motorcycle cop. I guess if he was giving you a ticket, you wouldn't think that. But just uh, as a person, he was the nicest person you'd ever want to meet. And so different than Eddie, that it was just funny when you'd see him and walk onto the stage and be talking to him. And suddenly he'd go on to do the scene and he was Eddie Haskin. He'd go, how could he be that mean? Well, Ken Osmond was probably the best actor on the show because he was so removed from the character he played. Can you imagine Mayfield during a pandemic? Eddie would wear the mask in front of your folks and lose it by the time he hits your bedroom, I think. Yeah. I think you're right. Also great were Hugh Beaumont and Barbara Billingsley. Any lessons from their parenting you maybe wound up using years later on your own? Well, for me, probably they were all the wrong things. You know, if you're an ideal kid and you do everything right and you don't learn how to slither through a few openings in in life, it's tough. So I think uh, Jerry's might have been better. What do you think, Jerry? You know, it's hard to say. Barbara was really nice. Hugh Beaumont, uh, you know, people don't realize that he was just a wonderful person, but what he really wanted to be was a Methodist minister. And he just took an acting job actually before Leave it to Beaver so that he could support his very, very uh, poor congregation. So he was just a wonderful person and all the crew had families and we just had a really good time doing the show. Yeah, that family vibe translated on the show. You could tell it was a happy set. The producers definitely tried to make it that way. I remember on the first day, uh, one of the grips thing we were shooting outside, he dropped a reflector and he swore. He, you know, I don't know what he said, but anyway, Joe Conley was there and he went over to our assistant director and told the assistant director to get rid of that guy immediately. So that set the tone for the show. All the crew people, in addition to any of the actors that came on, had to be pretty straight laced and be aware that there were kids on the set. Uh, Hugh Beaumont, pretty straight-laced guy, directed some of the later episodes. What was that like? Any, any difference in style? Well, you know, he was a, a very good director, but it was probably in some ways easy for him to do it because he'd seen other people did it, but he knew the characters well. A lot of times we'd feel sorry for the, the brand new director that came in. You know, they'd give him a script, they'd watch maybe some of the episodes, but he knew us. He knew how mischievous I was and how good Tony was. <laughs> Get out of here. You sounded just like Wally then. <laughs> but he was just a wonderful man. When he talked to the beaver, or whenever I did anything, that calling, the Methodist minister, came out. And he was fun to work with. Barbara Billingsley was great. Did either of you ever get butterflies in front of the camera? Jerry was great. Jerry had already been a star since he was two years old. So 
he knew how to act in front of a camera and it was always amazing. He'd never read a, a line incorrectly. He was always just spot on. And I never acted much. I'd done one thing before Beaver. And uh, so it was kind of all new to me. And uh, although I'm a fairly calm type of person, it was a little scary at times, but I think I learned fairly quick. You were very quick. Tony was very good at it. I mean, he came in and actually he didn't do the original pilot, but the boy that played the Wally part wasn't anywhere near as good as Tony was, but he grew to be over six feet by the time we did the pilot till we started doing the show. So then Tony came on and he was just a wonderful person and a wonderful mentor. The only bad part about being a little brother with Tony was he could take a few steps forward and do a front flip or dive off a, you know, a high board and it was hard. I thought everybody must be able to do that except me. <laughs> Wally gave you a little bit of a complex there. Well, he's the AAU swimming and diving champ. So, I mean, it wasn't like he was uh, just an ordinary kid off the block that would just jump in the pool. He, he could do some wonderful diving, and uh, he was quite an athlete. I know you must have been asked this a million times. What are some of your favorite episodes, like in the soup with the soup bowl and the billboard? So let me ask you, what are your least favorite episodes? or most challenging episodes that you remember? Well, probably the Super Bowl was one. I mean, that was just something that, uh, you know, I was up on that billboard and it was, you had to climb up a ladder and go on it. In that last season opening with that swinging up-tempo theme, as you guys are pulling out of the driveway in the sponsor's car, is it true the back windshield was missing? Absolutely, because when they light it, we'd have a reflection so that you'd see the camera lens when it was moving. So that's why it was taken out. No seat belts, no head restraints, no back window. And you thought these times were dangerous. <laughs> How have you guys been handling the challenging past two years? Well, we have a really nice place up here in, um, in the hills in Santa Monica. And, um, you know, it's not so bad. I mean, I, that's how we spend most of our time anyway. It's gardening. And, and I'm a sculptor. And I had a couple of commissions that I had to finish. And I'm working on one now, so it really hasn't changed a lot, except going out to dinner. Although in Calabasas, there's a couple of places that are very careful. They have outdoor dining, and so you can actually get out and about. But um, it's tough. I'm sure people, a lot of people are going crazy. My wife and I really like it at home, and she does a lot of things when she's on the uh, Rose Society. She's been president and all sorts of different things. So. Um, we spend a lot of time gardening and going to rose shows and just having a lot, of, a lot of fun with a lot of very interesting people that come together as Rose Society people. So, you know, life is good for us. By the way, speaking of president, I have exciting news for political junkies, in case you didn't know. Not too long ago, Jerry launched Beaver for President, Pins and Hats. All right. Make America Neat Again. How's that for the insignia on the hat? I, I like it, but I just don't ever think the beaver was that neat. I can't remember that as a... Wasn't that one of the terms you used? Things were really neat. Yeah, yeah, it was. I'm sure it was, and swell, and all those great things that people said in the 50s. Make America swell again. <laughs> You're giving them the business. Oh, I remember all those fun beaverisms. We need beaver now more than ever. Except beaver wasn't crazy about washing his hands, so you got to change that policy. As a politician, you wash your hands all the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, by the way, Lincoln's portrait hung on that wall at Grand Avenue Grammar School all those years. I bet you guys knew he was a Republican. Most people don't, according to Trump. So most people do. <laughs> I bet I, I never saw the, the painting. 
or the portrait or whatever it was. You got to remember, even though those were sets, the schoolroom scenes and a lot of them, besides the main ones like the bedrooms and the living room and the kitchen, were taken down. And so they weren't up all the time. They were only up when there was that scene to be shot. And then the grips would come in and rip it all down. And they were just basically walls, four walls. And they'd take out a whole wall and film on it. And then we'd go back and it'd be gone. Before we go, I want to thank you guys so much. And let me give a shout out to Jerry Mathers Beaver Merch, M-E-R-C-H.com. And also TonyDowSculpture.com, a beautiful site where you can see Tony's work. I want to thank you both for your contributions to our culture. I appreciate that. We should have a lot of fun doing it. We had more fun doing it than a lot of people have watching it. Does that mean you might want to do it again? Absolutely. No. (laughs) (laughs) What a killjoy. I think we beat that dead horse to death. We've already done an adult series. We've done a feature film. We did a movie of the week. You know, how much stuff can you do on this? Well, now we're old and grandparents. That's even better. But the movie kind of put a dent in everybody's love for the show, I think, because it wasn't really like the Beaver show was. Yeah, but we weren't in it, so that's probably why. Boy, I think I hear Beaver and Wally arguing. I hope they don't have another one of their pillow fights. You know, dear, I remember when I was their age. Ward, stick a pillow in it. <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us. And give us a follow on Twitter at Andy G. Cowan. Well, we want to thank Jerry Mathers, Tony Dow, our supporters at the Benstown McVeigh Media Podcast Network, Mike McVeigh, Chachi, Kevin Horton, Susan Axu, and most importantly, you, our listeners. Especially if you're still listening. Visualize that they are, Andy. Now I'm visualizing you made them stop. Come visit Andy Cowan, that's C-O-W-A-N dot net for a way to reach out and get my big book, Banging My Head Against the Wall, A Comedy Writer's Guide to Seeing Stars, forward by Jay Leno, available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Black Rose Writing, and at the National Comedy Center in Lucille Ball's hometown, Jamestown, New York. Hitching on the Highway of Life, opening theme by yours truly, instrumental performance by Marty Rifkin, the full tune also available on Amazon, musical stingers by Steve Crum, Lazy Day closing theme by the Bob Mincer Big Band. For your mental wellness, you can reach me at drscottk at psysolutions.net. Until next session, I'm Andy Cowan. And I'm Dr. Scott Kapoyan. For now, I see our time is up.